Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. So last week, Nehemiah's prayer, we get to hear this week about an answered prayer from Nehemiah chapter 2, 1 through, 1 through 10. Let's pray again and ask for the Lord's help. Lord, thank you that you hear and answer prayer. And so we come to you and we ask as your children that you would uh, speak and that you would help us to hear and listen and respond in the way you would have us respond. We love you. Thank you so much that you're present with us every week when we come here. You're present in your people. Holy Spirit, thank you for dwelling inside of us and pointing us to Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. We ask you to lead us. We trust you will. It's in his name, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So God, I've said it three or four times, always hears and answers prayer, always. And he answers in one of three ways. He answers yes, no, or later. Yes, no, or not yet. And so we lay our request out to the Lord in prayer. We pray and we lay out our hopes. We give him our fears, our anxieties. We lay out those prayers and those requests to the Lord, those supplications. And then we trust him and we petition and then we submit to him. But we are never in a point of resignation with prayer. We never just resign to an inevitable fate. We always come to him in prayer and petition. And submission should never be confused with resignation. We never shrug our shoulders and say that God is going to do what God is going to do. So why even come to him with our petitions? No, we pray, we petition, and then we come to Him with our submission and we trust our Heavenly Father. We keep coming to Him, we keep crying out to Him, and we always trust Him. And we want to avoid being angry with His answers. Yes, no, later. We want to avoid being angry with His, with his answers. And uh, we don't have to understand everything about prayer to trust in God's character. We don't have to, to know everything about prayer to trust in God's character. So we don't have to know all the mechanics of it. And in fact, theologically, if you begin to break down prayer, no matter what angle you look at prayer, there's always some angle of confusion where it's kind of like, I can't really figure it's all out. I can't dot all the I's or cross all the T's. But one of the things that we can know for certain is the character of God, that he loves us, that he's for us, that we're his children. And there are many people who will tell you in seasons of despair or seasons of frustration, they'll tell you that it's okay to be angry with God when he does not answer the prayer that you have given to him in the way that you would like him to. And most of the time people will say, well, God can handle your anger. And, uh, and that, I, I, there's some sense that I get that. That's, that's in some sense true. But it's a whole lot better to trust your Heavenly Father than to be angry with him. I'm not the one that's going to give you counsel that will say, well, he can handle your anger, so it's just be, be angry with him. No, it's a whole lot better to trust your Heavenly Father. Don't be angry with him. Trust him. There's no reason to be angry with him. He's always got your good in his mind. And he's given you promises for those who love God. He works all things to the counsel of his will and for your good. He's working all things, Ephesians 1, to the counsel of his will. And he's working all things, according to Romans 8, 28, for your good. So why would we be angry with him? When we have our questions, trust him. Trust him when we don't understand. So I would never give you counsel just to be angry with God. He can handle it. No, trust him. Trust him when you don't understand. And so today we're going to see God 
answer Nehemiah's prayer. It's going to be a four-month span that we see from the time Nehemiah began praying to the time that God answered his prayer. Nehemiah had to go about his normal business, his normal activities, his normal work. We don't know how long the prayers and the petitions last, if he prayed solid four months. We don't know exactly all the details, but we know that God answered his prayer and gave him what some would call a divine moment, a moment where his prayer was going to be answered. It was clear and it was obvious, and we get to see it through a conversation with Nehemiah and King Artaxerxes. We take it up in chapter 2, verse 1. Look at the setup. And it came about in the month of Nisan, in the twelfth or the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had been sad, I had not been sad in his presence. Last week we ended, we ended the chapter finding out who Nehemiah was. He was the cupbearer to the king. It was a position of prominence in one way, it was a position of danger in another way. He was the one who listened, or excuse me, he was the one who drank the cup, before the king did. And if there was poison in the cup, well, then Nehemiah would die instead of the king dying. And so Nehemiah and Artaxerxes had this, uh, I don't know if it was a friendship, but it was certainly this relationship that was an every single day kind of thing where Nehemiah was always in his presence. And so every time, every time the king took a drink, Nehemiah would drink before him. And uh, you'd think, you know, you always wonder who ate the first poisonous mushrooms you know, because you're like, somebody had to find out that they were poisonous, and it did not go well for them. And their buddy was like, okay, don't eat that. I had this buddy, Bill, and he ate that, and it killed him, so don't eat that. Um, same way with Nehemiah here. He would drink the wine, and if it had poison, well, he would die. So he had a, a high-risk job, but it was a position at least of somewhat prominence because he was around the king day in and day out. So this month in the Jewish calendar was four months previous to the story that began in chapter 1, and so... He was told the news of Jerusalem four months ago. He said that he was not sad in the presence of the king, at least in his opinion. He said, now I had not been sad in his presence, so he had tried to control his emotions. And he was going about doing his job. It was a normal day. And this is how things that God does typically happen, just on a normal day in the normal routine of life. And uh, he makes it the point. He makes the point that he, he tried to control himself. And so... Even though Nehemiah thought he was not sad in his presence, the king recognized something about the countenance of Nehemiah. Look at verse 2. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. So the king speaks. So here's how this chapter is going to go. Nehemiah is going to speak, and Artaxerxes is going to speak. It's going to be almost a verse-by-verse thing where they just speak back and forth. And we are, we're privy to this conversation. We get to hear the conversation between Nehemiah and the king. And so Artaxerxes speaks. And he says, why is your face sad, though you are not sick? So he recognizes something going on in Nehemiah. And so he speaks. The king called him out. Nehemiah, you're sad. What's going on? And Nehemiah immediately, upon this moment, was afraid. This is his moment. It's here It's before him. This is what he's prayed for. He probably didn't expect it on this day. He probably woke up thinking it's just going to be another day in the presence of the king. And the king spoke to him and he asked him something personal. The king of Persia is asking him, why are you sad? So what's Nehemiah going to do with that fear? Will he cower? Will he run? Will he freeze? Will he lie? 
Or will he speak? Will he seize the opportunity? Will he see that God is giving him an open door? And that's what we see. Look at verse 3. Nehemiah does, in fact, speak. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and the gates have been consumed by fire? Fire. So Nehemiah, he takes this opportunity and he speaks with respect to King Artaxerxes. It's interesting, we don't know a lot about the character of Artaxerxes, but he does start with respect. And one of the things we've got to be careful with when speaking about elected or appointed officials that I've got to be careful with is I want to speak with respect. We don't have to respect sinful action. We don't even have to respect the person, but the position we do need to respect. And what we see is that Nehemiah respected the position of Artaxerxes, and he said, long live the king, and then he lays out his request. I'm sad because the city, my city, and even saying that, he's saying that this is not my city. Susa is not my city. The Persian Empire is not my empire. My city, the city that I come from, the city that my family is from and my people are from, lie desolate, and the gates are burned with fire. So the king answers back, and it's a benevolent response. It's a response of kindness. Nehemiah could have been in the presence of the king upon speaking about personal matters. He could have been killed. He could have been, there's all sorts of things that could have happened. But he took his moment, kind of like Esther took her moment. And we see the king responds in a benevolent manner. Look at verse 5, or look at verse 6, excuse me. Uh, look at verse 4, sorry. Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. So the king says, okay, Nehemiah, what do you want? Your city, the city of your fathers, the gates are burned, the walls are torn down, so what do you want? Is there something you want from me? This is it. This is the moment. The providential hand of God is there in the presence of these two, and Nehemiah takes a second, and he has to pray. And this is a real prayer. It's a prayer that probably was prayed silently, probably lasted one second, two seconds, two seconds, three seconds, something like that. God help me. And we're often tempted to think that real prayer can only happen in a prayer closet. Now, we do need more men and women who have prayer closets. We have, we have too few people who take prayer very, just not seriously enough. But one of the things that we can err in is we can take prayer so seriously that we don't think one-second prayers are actually prayers. And in this moment, Nehemiah stopped, so I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said, it had to be a moment in prayer, God, please help me, give me wisdom, give me courage, help me to say what I need to say. And then he looks at the king, and he speaks. God, make this request fall on kind ears. I wish we knew exactly what he said, but we don't. God didn't want us to, but we do know that he prayed, and then he spoke. He didn't just pray, he prayed, and he spoke to King Artaxerxes. Look at verse 5. I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Now this is a bold request. It might not seem so at first glance. The, the Persian Empire has resources, and its resources are going to where the king would want it to go. To the advancing of the empire, to the rebuilding of the broken down cities within the empire, the building of the king's homes, to expanding his kingdom and his territory. 
And here is Nehemiah in this moment, after praying, laying out a request. If it pleases you, King Artaxerxes, if I have found favor, please send me to Judah because I want to rebuild Jerusalem. I want to rebuild the city of my fathers. And so the king responds in verse 6. The king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me. And I gave him a definite time. So Nehemiah, give me the deets. What's the deets? Tell me what's going on. How long are you going to be gone? What do you need? Give me the details. It was a favorable response. It was clear that God's hand was, was at work. Now God had already brought favorable responses from King Cyrus for Zerubbabel and for Ezra. God's hand had already been on this pagan nation to give favor to his people. And now here it is again with a new king, Nehemiah and Artaxerxes, and God's hand and his presence was there. God never forgets his promises. And he promised that his good hand would be on them, that his plan for them was to give them a future and a hope, like we talked about last week. They had plans to prosper them and to not harm them. And so Nehemiah had to have thought this through. Give me details. He had to have thought this through. And then after saying, what do you want? How long are you going to be gone? Nehemiah responds again. Now, verses 7 and 8. Here we are. I said to the king, if it please the king, if it please the king, let letters be given me from the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may allow me to pass through until I came, till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them because the good hand of my God was on me. It's a bold request. Would you send me favorable letters to governors? Would you give me safe passage? Would you give me a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the timber, to get free lumber to build the fortress by the temple, to rebuild the walls, and to let me build a house? And the king granted them, in the verse before we find that it pleased the king, that somehow or another the favor of God was so much in that room that the king heard this request, this pagan king heard this request, and it made him happy. It pleased the king to do this. This is unimaginable favor. We see that God can turn the hearts of even wicked kings that do not know him to bring his purposes about in his people to advance his cause. This gives us great hope. Wicked rulers are no match for God. God can make wicked rulers happy about helping the people of God. That's pretty cool. We need some of that, don't we? And the king granted it to him because God's hand was upon him. God gave favor with this pagan evil king. And friends, here's the thing. The Bible is full of stories that look bleak, that look sad. The walls are broken down. We're entrapped in Egypt, for goodness sake. We're facing giants. We're facing enemies that are too big for us, too vast for us. Stories of Gideon hiding in the wine press, the weakest family and the weakest little boy in the family 
in all of Manasseh, the smallest and the weakest of the tribes. And God comes to Gideon and says, you're the man, O man of mighty valor. I'm going to use you, and I don't want an army of people. I'm going to go use 300 people. God loves to work when it seems impossible. God loves to work in bad situations. And, and what we're watching in front of us, to go back to some of the things we talked about last week, the walls are broken down, his heart is broken because the place in which the presence of God was, was falling apart. And as we look at the landscape of the church, there's a lot of frustrating things happening. Mass apostasy happening on one hand, people who are abandoning God's word to appease people, and yet on the other side, if we look, if we see it, I think we can see revival happening. I think we can see some really great things happening in our midst. We're seeing churchmen fold, as we talked about, to cultural pressure and to the demands to just listen, listen, listen. Listen to all this evil, vile things, and then finally you'll understand where we're coming from. We see pastors being duped by that, and yet there's others who are waking up and kind of scratching their heads and saying, wait a minute, shouldn't we be listening to God? And there are churches all across the country who are saying, wait, no, 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 no. We love you, but we're going to listen to God, and then we're going to tell you how to escape the tyranny that you're under, the sin that you're entrapped in. We're going to listen to God, and then we're going to proclaim the good news to you about how you can be set free. We're not going to wallow in the muck and the mire with you to try to understand you. We're going to understand God, and then we're going to plead with you to bow to him. You can find freedom. You don't have to stay wallowing in that. You don't have to stay celebrating that sin. You can be free. And there are people all across this land, I think, that are rediscovering the glory of God's word, that are stepping up into boldness and saying, wait a minute, God's spoken to this. Like he really has, his word is not silent. God's not silent about this issue or that issue or that sexual ethic or whatever it may be. God has spoken to this. And he sent his son to die for people who are in the gutter and in sin. And we're not going to help them celebrate the fact that they're in the gutter and that they're in sin. We're going to call them out of that. We're going to tell them about a Jesus who loves them. And I think there are more and more people who are coming back to the heart of the gospel of Jesus and to God's word and saying, hey, we can rally around him. We can rally around his word. I think we see a lot of positive things happening. And if we can see it, the favor that we saw in that room that day, I think God is doing something like that as well. We just got to open our eyes to see it. There's a rediscovery right now in the goodness of the law of God over man's law. We've heard so much about social justice over the last couple of years, but we begin to think about God's justice, about right and wrong as God sees it. We're seeing more and more people discovering, wait a minute, the law of God is good. It kills and brings us to Jesus, but when we know Jesus, the instruction of God is good for us. There's freedom in walking in obedience to the command of God. There's freedom in living in lives and, and structuring our lives in the way that God has told us to live. And the lie is that the law only kills, that it only slays. But there are people who are discovering, wait a minute, if we're Christians and we're grateful for what Christ has done for us, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and are starting to be ravenous to say, God, speak to us what you have to say. What do you say to us? And we want to obey that. Away with antinomianism, which is lawlessness. 
There's a lie that says, well, the grace of God covers all your sins, so you don't have to obey God. Oh, no. When you understand the grace of God, you want to obey God. You want to respond to him. You want to walk in his ways. You want to live in the way that he has instructed us to live. Will we fall short? Absolutely. But are we going to strive for more and more obedience the rest of our lives? Absolutely. How could we not once we know what Christ has done for us? And friends, I think I'm seeing it. People who are waking up to the goodness of God's law over man's law. What we're seeing is the result of people doing what's right in their own eyes and when they cast away the law of God and things just implode, they just, they can't stand. God's people are seeing the results of secularism and instead of seeing things crumble, God's people are building up new works for his glory. We're building things for his glory. Right now, there's somebody that, uh, Marcus Pittman, many of you know him, he was from Apologia Church and he's starting a, a real good media company and saying, you know what? Netflix has gone to rot. Amazon Prime is, have you seen like the Amazon Prime movies that come out or the TV shows that come out? They are horrible. They're just absolutely horrible. You know what he's doing? Instead of complaining about it, he's building his own Christian media company with good Christian movies. He's going to act like, I'm sorry, like that can be a thing, by the way. And so it's called Lore. What about Andrew Torba of Gab. I've been so encouraged by this new Gab. He thought, I'm tired. He worked in Silicon Valley, and he saw Facebook. This is like five years ago, Silicon Valley, censoring everything, Twitter, Facebook, all the stuff coming down the line. And he thought, you know what? I'm going to build something for the glory of God, and I'm going to provide an ark of free speech. And he's on there talking about Jesus being king. He's on there like quoting Bible verses. He's on there quoting people that are really solid theologians. And he's saying, hey, come, there's freedom here. Because the liberty I have in Christ, you can come and find liberty here. And he's building. We see households being built. We see men stepping up into their God-given role as leaders in their homes. Our eyes are being opened to the multi-generational purposes of God. Christian families are rediscovering the glory of biblical households. We're seeing how amazing the Christian home can be. We're portraying a, a different way to live to the world, saying, hey, look, this is, there's a different way to live. There's a different way to be a grandparent than how other grandparents grandparent. There's a different way to have a home, a different way to be a father than how they're doing it. There's a different way to be a mother than how they're doing it. Striving to obey God and build something epic from your home. Families rediscovering the multi-generational purposes of God. Men being biblical women. Women being biblical women. And more and more I see men being fed up with being told toxic masculinity is the problem. Which, by the way, is morphing into, forget the toxic, masculinity is the problem. Psychology Today came out with an article this, week, or this last month saying that they have done this 12-year study and they've discovered that the problem of the social ills today is because of not toxic masculinity, traditional forms of masculinity. Masculinity itself is the problem. And that's foolish. We need men being men, and we need women being women. And I think more people, again, are across this land in the midst of all this gender confusion are saying, wait a minute, it means something to be a man. And wait a minute, it means something to be a woman. And wait a minute, it means something to be a boy. And it means something to be a girl. And it's good that God made us this way. Different, gloriously different. 
And he made us in such a way that I can do things that my wife cannot and that my wife can do things that I cannot. I don't know if you know this or not. Sorry, popular media today, but only women can have children. Yeah, they're working on it. They are. They're trying to kind of thwart biology. I can't. I'm not permitted to. I don't have the ability to. But my wife does, and it's amazing. Men can do things that women can't do. Women can do things that men can't do. And it's not just about children. It's in several categories of life. And that's a good thing. God is at work. Now, we know the good news. We know the good news of the gospel of Jesus. We are forgiven people because of the work of Christ. We're children of God. And so in the midst of things going on, let's take this Nehemiah moment and let's open our eyes to see what God is doing in our lives. And your life personally may look like totally different, everybody else's life in here. But what is God doing See it. Recognize it. We're the children of God. Don't be afraid. Don't lose heart. Get your head up. Get to work. Don't be afraid. We are the victors. We are not the victims in society. We press on. God's activity always draws the attention of the enemy, but we don't have to be thwarted by the enemy. We press on. And in the same way, the favor of God was on Nehemiah through Artaxerxes, we can trust that the favor of God, the grace of God is going to be on us today, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, into the rest of our lives. God is working in and through us. But here's what you'll notice. When the favor of God is there, when blessing came to Nehemiah, there's always a sand ballot. There's always somebody, we'll see here in a minute, there's always an accuser of the brethren. There's always somebody frustrated with the good work of God. We're going to dive deeper in this next week. But when you're looking and seeing what God is doing, there's always these voices over here saying, oh yeah, but what's not happening? Look, the enemy's gaining ground. Look how much you're messing up. And we're tempted to be complainers. We're tempted to see the negative. And I tell you what, complaining people annoy people. That's just the truth. And if you're always a complainer, maybe somebody's not told you, but newsflash, you're annoying people. What is God doing? See it, recognize it, and naysayers are going to come, but you don't turn into the naysayer. Now, I'm not talking about foolish positivity at all times, floating around like we live in Mayberry or that life is just, you know, floating on the clouds and it's always easy. But if you'll train yourself, you'll see the activity of the sovereign God of the universe in places you didn't think you would see it before. And you'll recognize the favor of God on your life. God has been so gracious to you. Uh, look back in your life and see where you are now, and you'll have to credit God and His grace. That God has been so kind to us. But there's always naysayers. There's always people who are angry with the work of God. Look at verse 9. And 10. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. And now the king who had sent me sent, sent with me officers of the army and the horsemen. Now get this. 
Not only did he send resources with him, not only did he send, send letters to the governors and to Asaph, the timber keeper, but he also sent officers of the army and horsemen. This was a sight to see. Nehemiah was coming with some resources now. I mean, you had the cavalry behind you. You're walking in front, and you have this army. And here, I've got a letter from King Artaxerxes. We're going to rebuild the, king, we're going to rebuild the city the city of God, we're going to Jerusalem, here's our pass, and by the way, we want all, see, see all those like 80 acres of trees right there, those mighty oaks, uh, we want you to mill those for us, thank you, we'll, we'll come back in a couple months, get to work. Verse 10, when Sanballat and Horonite and Tobiah, the Ammonite, the official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. The people of God always have haters. You would be favorable to the people of God? Who are you? You would be favorable to Christians? You would want to see their cause advanced? When the people of God are on the offense, there's always people, always going to be people coming, shooting arrows... Coming to jeer? We've got this story about George Whitfield. This happened in a very live way, like very present way, just a couple months back. But as George Whitfield would preach, there would be people who would come, did not, they hated him, and they would come and beat the drum and play the trumpet and play their instruments so people couldn't hear him preach. A couple months back at a psalm sing in Moscow, Idaho, there were a few Christians that were arrested for doing a sing, a psalm sing. And the church just kept coming back to do a psalm sing, peaceful assembly. And as they were there singing hymns, like three hymns, there were people in the community that were coming and playing instruments obnoxiously, loudly, because they didn't want the offensive psalms to be sung in their city. There's always opposition. And here's Sanballat was appalled, and these three leaders, these officials were appalled that someone would come and seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. Nehemiah went on his way. The journey home was on. He made it to the governors and to the officials with all the horsemen and with all the authority, and here is Sanballat, even with all of that, hearing from the king, and he still has the energy to hate on Nehemiah. Sanballat and Tobiah hear about this train, this party that's coming, and what they're doing, what their plans are, and they just don't like it at all. Um, all good stories have bad guys. All good stories. You can't find a good story that doesn't have a bad... This is the, every movie you see, this is the story that's woven into creation. There's always, there's always a bad guy. There's a good guy, there's a bad guy, there's some sort of battle, there's some sort of mystery that unfolds, and the good stories have the, the good being victorious over the evil. And you just ask the question, where all those stories come from? You know, those stories come from, because they're, they're here with us because it's woven into creation itself. It's because we're all children created by God. Not that we're all sons and daughters of God, but we are all created by God, and we have inside of us, by the common grace of God, this conscience. And we know that there's right and wrong. There's one pastor I used to listen to, used to say, if you find somebody that denies good and evil, punch them and steal their stuff, and they will quickly tell you that that was wrong. 
Now, I've, I've said something about punching two weeks in a row now. I'm not a violent person, I promise. Um, when God's at work, somebody's always angry. And it's going to be there. And the temptation, when the anger or the pushback comes, the temptation is going to be, wait a minute, are we doing the right thing? Wait a minute, am I doing the right thing? When you're pressing forward, when you're on the advance, and opposition comes, there's, you're going to have to stop and you're going to think, okay, God, am I doing the right thing here? Maybe this opposition is good. Maybe this opposition is helpful. Maybe I am doing something wrong. You've got to have some sort of grid. But they were angry that somebody would seek the welfare of this city. Um, and as we build locally, as we obey the Lord Jesus Christ, as God continues to bring people into our, our church family, as you continue to evangelize and live obediently in your home, I, I tell you what, right now, if you are a biblical family, and if, if you take the home seriously, and ladies, real quick, here's, and for, for men and women both, men, men are the leaders of the home. That alone is offensive enough. And they're called to love their wives as Christ loves the church. And he gave himself up for it. And ladies, you're called to submit to his leadership. And husband, you're called to provide for your, your family, your household. And ladies, you are called first to the home. Not exclusively, but the easy grid of whether or not what's going on in your home is obedient is where, what's, your, what's your primary calling, ladies? And if you don't think it's the home, if you think that the home gets in the way of the real work, then you've got to really deal with that. Your calling is first to the home, not exclusively, but first. And if we live that way, people are going to think, I mean, archaic weirdos. But this is what God has laid out for us. And there's going to be opposition, possibly even from brothers and sisters. And as we build and as we take living obediently to God seriously, we're going to have our sand ballots come our way. The enemy of our souls hates us. The devil, the defeated foe, still in some way that's mysterious to me, is called a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And 1 Peter tells us, resist him and he will flee. He still can shoot arrows, this defeated, shackled foe, this toothless lion can still shoot his arrows and he can still roar and he can still raise up opposition to the people of God. And he hates us. He hates you. Sanballat hated the people of God. And do not be surprised when the world hates you. And as we apply all of God's word to all of life, some people won't like it. They'll say, that's legalistic. Let no unwholesome speech come out of your mouth. That's legalistic. Come on. As you open up a Bible verse, read a Bible verse, whatever it may be, one of the most controversial things you can do right now, even in Christian circles, is just throw out a Bible verse that's controversial and watch people squirm. There's always going to be the sand balance. So let's review and then let's respond. Are you facing opposition right now? Do you have a sand ballot in your life? Some of you might not be facing opposition because you're not seeking to obey God. It's because you're not seeking to apply God's word to all of your life. 
one of the easiest ways to avoid opposition in this world is to live by the, by the standards of the world. Just agree with them, just live your life in the exact same way that everybody else is living their life. Live in such a way that's acceptable to the world. And you just won't receive opposition. That's a way to avoid sandballing. But if you want to obey the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you ask, like, we have all these promises of persecution in the Bible, and if we've never had that, if we've never had opposition, we, we just really got to ask, like, huh, if nobody has ever opposed me, what about the promises that opposition, that persecution will come? If they hated me, they will hate you, and nobody's ever hated me? Maybe I'm not doing something right. I'm not talking about it being intentionally obtuse. But opposition will come. And you've got to be okay with that. I've got to be okay with that. When opposition comes, those in opposition will be certain that you are wrong. Sanballat was certain that Nehemiah shouldn't be doing this. And that Artaxerxes somehow had a slip of his kingly wisdom. And most certainly shouldn't have given Nehemiah all this power, all these resources. What's happened to the king? He didn't know that the king's hand is a stream of water. The king's heart is a stream of water that God turns whichever way he will. At times, maybe in these moments, uh, maybe you are in the wrong. And somebody comes to you, it's a dear brother or sister, and, and maybe there is real issues with what you are doing. But when you know that what you are doing is motivated by God's grace upon your life, whatever it may be. Nehemiah knew this was God leading me to do this. If opposition comes, I don't care because God's leading me back home. The temple's already re been rebuilt. Ezra's there. There's already revival. People are discovering, my goodness, God is making his promise sure and true right before our eyes. He's bringing us out of Babylon, bringing us out of Persia, and we're, we're the generation that gets to see it. When you know you're being obedient to the Lord, it gives you confidence. Water off a duck's back. We're moving forward. When you know you're obeying God's word, you press on. Opposition will always come to those who obey God. Opposition will come to those who obey God. Now, what area do you need to pray about? God always hears and answers prayer. We got to see the answered prayer right here in chapter 2 from chapter 1. Chapter 1, prayer. Chapter 2, answer. You guys have experienced answered prayers in your life. What do you need to be praying about? This was a huge request from Nehemiah. Huge. God, please, I'm about to ask something big here. Maybe it was... The, the prayer, God, I'm, I'm about to ask something like really, really big here. Please, God, please just help him not punch me. And there's the punch again. Please help him, help, help him not, you know, kill me right here. God, give me favor. Give me favor. Um, this is going to be huge. I'm not just asking to go back to Jerusalem. I'm going to ask for the timber. I'm going to ask for him to give me free material to build. And I'm going to ask for him to send with me guards, armed guards. I'm going to ask for the cavalry to come with me. God, please, this is huge. I need you to come through. What do you need to be praying about? Nehemiah prayed and acted. So what do you need to pray about and what do you need to act on? What do you need to pray about and what do you need to act on? There's some things we've prayed about for years but not acted on. And we've acted as if we're act, act, you know, waiting on God to come through. 
and we have commands to obey already. God fixed my marriage, but not willing to obey him in marriage. God helped me with this particular thing with my children, but not willing to repent to my children. God helped me financially, but I'm going to keep living foolishly financially. So we pray and then we do something about it. We do what he's called us to do and we trust him to do what we cannot do. That's how prayer works. What he calls us to do, we do. And we trust him to do for us what we cannot do with the strength of our hands. What about fear? Nehemiah had to deal with it. What about you? Um, Are you going to let fear paralyze you? Or are you going to do something with it? In this moment of fear we see with with Nehemiah, then I was very much afraid. He brought his fears to the Lord, and then he acted. He brought his fears to the Lord. He did not let that fear dominate his life. And so some of you deal with fear, and it's perpetual. It's just there. It's just always lingering there. And it may just be because you've not brought that to the Lord, and you've not acted on what he's called you to do. Like, fear doesn't have to be a perpetual thing the rest of your life. Like, go to the Lord. The God of the universe is your heavenly Father. Fight to believe that, that he loves you, that he's in charge, and his good purposes are at work in your life. And finally, when you know God, you don't have to fear anything or anyone else. When you fear God and you know him, You don't have to fear anything or anyone else. The fear of God is death to the fear of anything else. It really is. I know the God of the universe. I get to kneel and to stand in his presence. And because what Christ has done for me, I get to kneel and stand in his presence and not die. And I know the God of the universe, the God who spoke this universe into being out of nothing. Whom or what shall I fear? He is my heavenly Father. Friends, this is a lesson that we learn. These are lessons that we learn from Nehemiah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you. Holy Spirit, bring conviction where conviction needs to come. We pray that condemnation would be thrown out of this room. There's no room for condemnation amongst the people of God. And so if anybody in here is feeling condemned, we pray against it, we reject it. We just reject it. Nope, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But God, help us be quick to repent if there's any area that we need to repent. You love us. You've saved us. You've forgiven us of all of our sins. You've given us the righteousness of Jesus. And so we're free to repent and change. We're just free to change. Holy Spirit, lead. I trust you will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.